Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason and Sosa Pater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who write this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, host to me and to the, and to the whole church, greet you. Erastus, the city treasurer, greets you. Quartus, the brother, and Quartus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Father, we do thank you and praise you for this text. Lord, we ask that you would help us now as we study this passage. May you speak to us through your word. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. This passage is sort of interesting to me. I've been, why is it placed where it is? Uh, Trying to figure out how to handle Romans 16 and sort of mapping out our our schedule was sort of tricky. Um, as I looked at it, and especially the end, the last few verses, 25 through 27, are, are perfect Christmas verses, speaking of the coming of Christ, and, 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 and it fits, you know, the Sunday before Christmas. It's just perfect. But then we have these two weeks. We, last week, we have, you know, 27 names of people are listed that Paul uh, basically sends his greetings to these people in Rome, uh, people he's known to this church that he doesn't really know. He sends Phoebe. He, he asked for some encouragement for Phoebe that they would take care of her as she delivers the letters or the letter. And then he mentions all of these names to kind of make the connection to the church in Rome. And then if we go to verse 21, we see that uh, we read about Timothy, Lucius, uh, Jason, Sosipater, Tertius, uh, Gaius, Erastus, Cordus. These, these list of people that, that Paul is with that send their greetings to them. And then sort of wedged between those greetings, there's a strong warning. Um, It it makes me wonder, why did he put it here? Why why is it listed in this place? This this warning dealing with relationships and those who come in the church. But but as I I recollect the book of Romans, I, I I can't remember any place in here where people are called out that there were that there were problems in the church there don't there doesn't seem to be any issue already surfacing here and the more i think about this passage the image that comes to my mind is an ingrown toenail how many of you have had an ingrown toenail i like well, get on my tippy toes i normally do them to myself on accident you know you got to be careful we it's, we'll save that class for later um <laughs> But there are certain people that when I get a, an ingrown toenail that I like, I'm, there's a, a fraternal order of ingrown toenails. My buddy with ingrown toenails is Dan's wife, Kelly. 
So often when tragedy strikes, she's like the one person I want to text the picture to, or I'll find myself in church. Like if I have it, I'll say, Kelly, let's, let's go uh, here, Dan, come with us. So, so we're safe. So we don't have any, like make any people think that anything's going on. We'll get down there and I'll say, just well, let's rip off my foot. Look at it. Look at all its nastiness and the pus. It's so painful. And she'll be like, oh yeah, that's a nasty one. That, can I get a picture of it? I don't know if she ever take a picture of it. But, but she had one like before my last one, or they, maybe they came around the same time. I think I saw hers and she had a friend at work that happened to be a nurse. I forget the exact story, but she had a surgery on her own time. Like her friend operated on her foot and she sliced down the center of the nail and then ripped off the half of the toenail. It was so nasty, but it was so fun to look at, like to check it out. And so we went back and forth. Around this time is when we had the uh, the fundraiser for Alternatives Women's Center that when we did the the uh, the rummage sale. And in the rummage sale, there was this thing. I don't even know. Probably somebody from the church gave it to us to sell it, but we ended up buying it. It was a foot massage, like a, a foot soaker, foot massage thing with Jigger, where you put water in. And and so Kelly and I kind of got in the bidding war, and we decided, hey let's go in and buy this together and we'll have sort of like a you know joint ownership of it and we you can have it one week i'll have it the next week and so we went back and forth with this this foot massager thing until our feet were healed it was awesome you guys are all looking at me like gunner where are you i am going somewhere with this (laughs) and so (laughs) we have a ways to go in the story before i bring it all together but but recently so because of my like appreciation for like ingrown toes like i just really enjoy them i have some i haven't told you guys the bad stories but my brother-in-law i've heard through like anna talking to her mom and anna's mom talking to her sister that my brother-in-law had been suffering with this ingrown toenail but he refused to seek help and, and like a month went by but none of the girls like wanted to say hey you need to deal with that because they they he was in his place where he wanted to fix it on his own he found himself at my house maybe a month ago and he was getting ready to go to a soccer game and he's like, yeah, my foot, the, the subject came up. I was trying to lead him like, are you limping, buddy? He's like, oh yeah, I got this toenail. I'm like, can I see it? He showed it to me and it was, oh man, bad. And I'm like, I can take care of that thing, you know? I know, I know all the tricks. And uh, he's like, really? He's like, well, it hurt. I'm like, No. <laughs> sucker so i'm like just get your foot down sit down on the kitchen floor i'm gonna go get a few products got the hydrant product he's like are you sure this isn't gonna hurt i'm like no it might bubble a little bit but it's not gonna hurt q-tips and i douse the thing on and i jammed the q-tip in there he must have hit the ceiling in pain and and he's like that hurt really bad i'm like i gotta go back in one more time he's like no I'm like, it's not going to hurt this time. The first one is where it hurt. The second time, we got to do this. And I just jammed it in there. So he got all patched up, went to a soccer game. By the next day, he's like, I'm feeling relief for the first time. Within a week, his whole toe was fixed. So if you have an ingrown toenail, come to me. I'll do it on the side. My rates are real low. Certainly cheaper than urgent care because I do it for the satisfaction of doing it. It's fun. And, uh, and the reason I bring this up is, I, is I, this is what's come to mind as I've looked at verses 17 through 19. The issue isn't that there's a problem. The issue is 
Paul wants to stay on top of the problem. Because if you don't handle certain things within the church, it only gets worse. When you have an ingrown toenail, you've got to deal with it right away or you're going to get in all sorts of problems. And so Paul wants to deal with preventative stuff so that they don't lead into problems. Often when pastors, I don't know, pastors, Christians, I've gone around and one of the big issues that sort of that, that comes up that's, that people like debating on is church polity, which means the, the governance of a church. Everybody has their opinion on what is the best way because really from Scripture, the, from Scripture you can kind of conclude a, a, maybe a couple different ways. I definitely have my feelings, but this isn't what the text is about. But where I normally end the conversation is that regardless of the church polity, if the church is healthy and operating in the spirit, they all function the same is the bottom line. Now, now, when things start getting unhealthy, I believe that some church polities are way harder to like fix. But the reality is, I think any church that gets unhealthy and starts getting sick within, it's almost impossible to heal. I mean, God can do anything. But when I've seen broken and damaged churches, it, it almost seems you can't fix it. I went to one church business meeting, not a church I attended to. I I was sort of spared from unhealthy church. That's one of the benefits of not going to church when you grow up, you know. So I don't have a lot of the scars from church because I just really wasn't in church. And so then as I became a Christian and started going to church and married my wife and started learning church culture, that there are some really unhealthy churches out there that are bad. And I went to this one church. I don't even know how I ended up there. Maybe I, I don't even remember how I ended up there. But it was an evening sort of service. And it was one of the ugliest church events I'd ever, ever been to. That this pastor was using the pulpit to basically slam people. There were people arguing. Ended up in this big church, not physical brawl. It probably would have been healthier if it turned into a fist brawl. I don't know. But it was a total mess. And I think, well, how did it get to this situation? And I think it got to this situation because there was a problem way back when that wasn't dealt with on the spot. And in this scripture doesn't mention other problems. But there are places in the New Testament and the epistles where people are called out by name. And I want to look at a few of these for the main purpose of while Paul is trying to say stay on top of it. I want us to understand why it's so critical to stay ahead of these things when there's problems. And this is something I just don't like as a pastor. It's not fun. If you'll turn with me to Rome, I mean to Philippians chapter Philippians chapter four two, this this one sort of makes me laugh. I think Philippians is my father in law's favorite book of the Bible. And one Mother's Day, I know he likes preaching special messages on Mother's Day. And I said, well, what's your text for Mother's Day? He's like, oh, I'm already in Philippians. I'm just going to handle the text. It's going to be my Mother's Day verse. And I'm like, what What Mother's Day verse in Philippians, huh? And I started thinking, he's like, yeah, Philippians 4 too. So I open it up and it's like, I urge Yodia and I urge Sinchiki to live in harmony in the Lord. So it's this passage where Paul writes these two women who are like, at each other's throats over something that we don't know. And I'm sure he did a great job. And I'm like, that is masterful. How did you turn that into a Mother's Day message? But, but Paul is calling out these two people by name because they're, they're wreaking havoc 
in the church over their personal squabble. And he says, stop it. Live in harmony in the Lord. This is unacceptable. If you turn with me to the back of the Bible, right before Revelation, you'll hit Jude. Before Jude is 3 John. It's one chapter, a few verses. And in verse 9, the Apostle John, near the end of his life, he writes this. I wrote something to the church by Diatrophes, who loves to be first among them. This is a problem that we'll look at today. These problems, it's normally self-interest, people's personal pride, their desire to get something for themselves. And he says, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words and not satisfying us with this. He himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so. And he puts them out of the church. This is the apostle of love. The apostle of love says, hey, you deal with the atrophies. And if I can make it to you, I'll handle him myself. And I'll get him out of the church to, to create health. Those are strong words. Doesn't seem very loving. But sometimes hardness deals like love looks a little bit harder. If we turn going over to first Timothy chapter one, nobody's laughing during these verses. I don't know. These are like, hard. but can you imagine like, I'm so glad God's not writing the Bible anymore. Can you, what if it was your name recorded for like all eternity for causing problems for like pastors over and over and over again to talk about now in first Timothy uh, chapter, where are we going to start at verse chapter one, verse 18. So we know Timothy, he's, uh, we know that he's a young guy. We know that he's sort of timid in his approach. Uh, Paul plants him as this young pastor in this region to deal with some issues and to lead the church. And so we read in verse 18, in 1 Timothy 1.18, he says, This command, that's Paul, I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in according in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom, have hand, whom I have handed over to Satan, so they would be taught not to blaspheme. So we know young Timothy. Hey, Timothy, I need you to go here because there's this unhealth. Uh, you need to deal with these older men and don't let them look down on you because you're young, but you need to stand firm. The church needs you for its health to deal with these guys. Difficult. How, how does this happen? If you'll turn with me over to second Timothy chapter three or stay with me. We see these names of these people who've created problems and, and how does it happen? Paul writing Timothy at the end of his life In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self. There we see that again. Lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revelers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, Although they have denied its power, so they look Christian, they look spiritual. 
Avoid such men as these. For among those are those who enter or slip into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to knowledge of the truth. Just as Janes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to to the faith, but they will not make further progress, for their folly will be obvious to all, just as Jonas and John Brace were folly off also. So Paul brings up this, this case of, of back in the Old Testament, that there's always been this problem because men has, has always been sinful. And we see this, this whittling into the church or the body, then creating havoc. If you look at modern day cults and look at their tactics, where the evangelical Christian church, our heart is to go to those unreached people groups. There's a specific tactic for a mini cults to, to go into areas where the Christian church is already established to enter in the doors, to try to look like the church, and then to start causing dissensions and starting a challenging teaching to then pull people away, which is at the heart of this passage. And Paul gives Timothy this stern warning. If you'll turn with me, I want to go to one of the verses that I didn't learn about until after I was a pastor, and it troubles me as a pastor. I bring it up at the new members class, and it's at Hebrews. Hebrews is one of those books that's always challenging to find. If you go to the back of the Bible, work your, work your way forward. You'll hit Peter, and you'll hit James, and right before James, you'll find Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17... I always give a a disclaimer at the first one, especially during the new members class, because it's like, oh, here's this pastor trying to just get you to do whatever he wants. But that's not the part that really troubles me. See, it starts with obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. That's the part that's troubling to me. As a pastor, I'm told that how I care for you, how I guard my teaching, how I protect the flock that God has entrusted me with, I'm told that at the end of the day, when I stand before the Lord and when you stand before the Lord, I have some measure of responsibility and accounting for your souls. I have a hard enough time just keeping track of my own soul and my own issues. This is why I take teaching the word of God so seriously. But but it creates problems when or not problems, it's difficulties. You know, church discipline is not something that's popular anymore. But but God makes it clear that the church is to protect its own, and it's love sometimes that, that causes discipline, that you don't allow the person to continue in sin. And then another one, if you'll turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5, of why I think many don't like church discipline, and I'm one of them. It's funny, there's a verse here, we all... One of the things we know about Timothy is that, oh, he's timid. He was young. People say, oh, he had weak health and he was like a a sickly guy. And, um, And, you know, on the issue of alcohol, this is one of those contentious sort of things within Christian circles. Um, I, I, I personally try not to consume alcohol. Um has nothing to do with religious reasons. It has to do with, I don't have the gift of moderation. But when it comes to NyQuil, I'm totally okay with NyQuil. If you find me in Spain or Italy and they offer me communion, that's wine, I'll take it. I'll even drink a glass of champagne on accident if I think it's bubbly water. 
But I don't not drink for religious reasons. There's nothing prohibiting a Christian from consumption of alcohol. The issue is always on drunkenness. And so this verse here creates problems for some groups. First Timothy chapter five, verse 23, because Paul writes to Timothy and he says, no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. So he says, hey, drink a little wine. It's, and those that are, I don't understand my, like I, I, those on the side that are okay with me because I don't consume alcohol say, oh, well, this is just medicine. This wasn't like wine. This is like watered down and there was like medicine in the grape juice. And that's what it, like we can dance around all of these issues, which uh, we're on a subject that I don't mean to talk about. As a pastor, there's, it's funny how some verses sort of like jump out at me in different ways now that I'm a pastor. I see this from a whole nother perspective now. But if we look at it in context, so I want to look at the verses before and I want to look at the verses after. And hopefully we'll laugh through this. So 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, going back a little bit. Paul writes, don't receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Okay, so I see Timothy there, young Timothy, okay. So if an accusation comes against a pastor, I gotta have two or three witnesses. Okay, there's okay. There's only one accusation from that person. Maybe the, uh, those who continue to sin rebuke in the presence of all. Wait, those that are in sin, you want me to rebuke? <sighs> you want me to rebuke? I mean, people in sin, you want me to like challenge them in front of every, Paul? The reason, for, so that the rest will also be fearful of sitting. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus of his chosen angels to maintain these principles without bias. Do nothing in a spirit of partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. Ah, I need help and I'm about to, you know, I'm about to call out another pastor. And it's just, you know, when we licensed Alberto for the ministry over the Hispanic church, it's like, I don't want to do this go quickly because if I lay hands on him hastily and send him into the ministry, then I'm responsible for this. Oh, now we're talking about we're bringing Ben on as an associate pastor in a couple of months. Well, what if Ben's a big mess up and he's full of sin? Then it's all my fault. Like, oh, my stomach. I'm having ulcers. I'm all of this stuff. How am I supposed to hang this, this strain of this? <laughs> no longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. And you're frequent. Relax, Timothy. The sins of some men are quite evident and going before them to judgment. For others, their sins follow after. Likewise, also the deeds that are good are quite evident and those which are. And I'm not saying this isn't like, hey, I'm guys, I'm going to be heading out of the bar today. I'm going to Fat Ivers to have a few drinks after church. This is, that's not what I'm saying here. But when problems arise in the church and you have a pastor who cares about what God says a pastor who cares about your souls. And we've already going through Romans. We've all like that one week, we all stood up admitting that we were all sinners. Like it's weighty. I mean, there's nights I can't sleep dealing with issues just in, in stress. How do I handle this? And especially when there is a sin problem that I know I have to confront. This, the, the preference to me, what I'd want to do is just sweep it under the, the, the carpet. Let's not deal with it. But then coming back to Romans, when I see Paul, says if you don't deal with it, you're, 
It's like a hangnail. It's not going to get better by ignoring it. It's going to fester and get worse. And throughout the New Testament, we see these people who left unchallenged wreaked havoc on Christ's church. And so I'm thankful as I come to this passage today, like, I've sort of made of, I don't know, not a vow is the wrong word, but in my mind, as we go through the scriptures, oftentimes people will come up to me after the service and like, man, Gunnar, you're like speaking right to me. I'm like, I wasn't speaking to you. I try not to even make contact, you know, like, I mean, I got to make eye contact. But there's always like problem passages and it's like, I'm just going to look at the floor right here. I see the stain right there. I'll just focus on the stain because my heart is to teach what God's word says to let it go out. My, my goal is never to fight battles and problems from the pulpit. It gets difficult when I'm aware of stuff that I'm ministering to people over certain issues. And I, I can't shy away from what the Bible says, but I also am not pointing people out. We handle stuff in privacy because we want restoration. And so I'm thankful today that as I come to this passage that we're, we're like Romans. There's not an issue that's on the side that's like eating me away right now. Like I truly believe that Valley Baptist Church is a loving, healthy, Christ-centered church. But I also recognize that Paul, or God through Paul has placed this warning here. That healthy churches don't just happen. They require the Spirit's leading and, and us being willing to like examine our own lives and to be loving and help others so that we stay the course. And look how he starts. The first thing he says is, now I urge you, brethren. If you think to yourself, that sounds familiar, you're, you're correct. This has only been used three times in all of Romans. This is a, a very important phrase. This is intensity paul's like wake up that what i'm about to say is critically important if we were to go back to romans 12 1 you can do that we would see the very first time that paul uses this phrase the first 11 chapters laying out doctrine explaining who we are as people who christ is what he's done for us the dealing with Israel and the church in Romans 9 through 11 really dealing with God's sovereignty, his faithfulness, his reliability, that he hasn't gone back on his word. All of these truths. And then he comes to Romans chapter 12, the meddling section. And he says, therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Is don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. He said, because of all that Christ has done for you, give him your lives. It's reasonable that you worship him with your life. Then we turn the page and we get to chapter 15 at the very end, what Ben covered last week in verse 30. And there we see this phrase again. And he says, now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ, and by the love of the spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. That I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea. And that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints. On Wednesday night we've been studying Acts. 
And it's been fascinating to me at the end of Acts. Paul, the scripture says that Paul, according to the spirit, was led to go to Jerusalem. That the spirit confirmed that he would have trials, he would have attacks, he would be bound. He might even die through the journey. As Paul's making his rounds to the churches, everybody who loved Paul and saw him along the way, the word says that through the spirit, they warned him not to go. It's like, man, this seems like confliction of interest. Like, how can the spirit warn some to stop him and then to Paul to say, you're going? I think there's something about resistance. I... I, I think that I know there's a bunch of different feelings on missionaries having to raise support, but the washout rate of missionaries in the field is super high. And so there's something to this, like spending time, raising money and going through trials like, no, God's called me. I don't see how I'm going to make it. I'm only at 20% fundraising and I'm supposed to leave in three months and they won't let me go till I'm hundred. But I have a buddy that's in, that's, that's in uh, where is he at? In uh, Kenya. He's in Kenya. Literally like two weeks before he was supposed to go out, he didn't know he was going to make it. Some, some donor said, you know what? God's convicted me. I'm funding, like I'm funding you. You're going. And so I think that Paul had this deep conviction. He's facing resistance. And if he couldn't handle the tears and the pain of, of those that, that loved him to say, don't go, don't go, don't go. And think about how Paul is, like how God, I'd say, has transformed the world through the testimony of Paul, through his writings. And he says, brothers, I beg you, difficulty is coming. Pray for me. It's not easy. It's painful. I know what awaits me. Trials are coming. Ultimately, he would give his life. And then in verse 17, we see this phrase for the third time. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances Contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them. This is important. I, you know, this whole, this. I said it during the last service, so I'll say it during the service. In the gunner's brain, this phrase here, I'll keep my, keep, keep your eye on those. This picture of like, keep your eye. I think like a year ago at the Frederick's house, I went to a pig slaughter. Never been to a pig slaughter. Did you guys know that bacon comes from an animal? I, I just thought it came from aisle three for all of these years. And, and so this guy, forget his name, but he, an amazing teacher. He doesn't just butcher. He like gives a class, pulls out the lungs, and just like a balloon shows how much air can go into a blood. It's fascinating. And then the one thing he did is he got to the pig's head and he or I'm assuming he cut out the eyeball. Somehow he had the eyeball in his hand. And then he sets the eyeball behind him. And he goes back to his work and he's like, kids and Pastor Gunner, I'm keeping my eye on you. <laughs> I've been laughing about that ever since. And so when I see this, that's the image that comes to my mind. Now, it really doesn't really work. But the idea of like keeping your eye, like stay focused. The word is the word that we would get microscope or telescope from this focused, looking, searching, being aware. And he says, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. These two things. I meant to pull a, a, a quote from a book that I really like. It's in my office and I have it on the computer. And, and uh, 
This happens so much in churches. There's some books out there that are sort of funny. There's like a book, something like Healing for Damaged Pastors. The one book I really like that's really good by Shelley is Ministering to Well-Intentioned Dragons. And so it's really, like for me at least, kind of going through as a pastor, like reading through this guy. I totally forgot to get the quote because I got so lost in like all of the stories he was telling, kind of laughing about these horror stories from from people from within the church and this dissensions one of the things that he just brings up over and over there's just too many to like grab one quote but he's like there's so many like christian looking people within the and this isn't valley baptist church i'm not this is this is the church at large i am super thankful for this church like and i'm I'm, this isn't just to try to get out of the difficulty of this I have pastor friends that when they go on vacation, they're like, oh, I don't go to church. I'm like, what do you mean you don't go to church? I'm like, I'll go on vacation. And I'll, like, we had a vacation a couple weeks ago. And I still came to church when Ben preached because I'm a Christian. Because I don't go to church because I'm a pastor. I, I come because I want to worship God. You're my family. And I'm not saying it's wrong to go to other churches. But I'm thankful. This, you guys are my church family. I love you. I just happen to be in this role of pastor. But he starts talking about how there are those who, who look like the Christians part, they speak Christianese, they do everything that they, they say and do all the right things. But then off on the side, can you believe the pastor told a story about a hangnail during church? Real Christian pastors wouldn't talk about hangnails during church. All this murmuring, this, this backbiting, this talking and starting factions within the body. He says, keep your eye on it. Watch out for dissensions. Remember, Paul said earlier, let your love be without hypocrisy. Love people to their face the same way you love them when their back is turned and they're not around you. Hindrances is a term for a word of a, of a, of a trap that when you put the bait on the thing, the trap would snatch on their head. And this would be those that use theological things to, to steer people away. Paul's day it was circumcision food. You can't be saved unless you're circumcised. In our day, I don't know what it'd be. It's like you need another book of the Bible. You need something else. Whatever it is, though, the pastor's teaching isn't, you're not getting the full teaching there. After being a pastor, I've learned to be very cautious in hearing people complain about teaching of other pastors. We need to keep our eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances. We need to guard this unity. Now, what's the standard? You know, I start thinking about church history and you go over things. There's, if you go into like the late 1800s in the United States, all sorts of cults sort of, there must have been something during that area that these groups that I don't think are Christian that fall under their Christian umbrella launched from. But then there are other, like the Reformation. There are other things where, where people revolted against the church. And, and why does history record one as being good? And, and one is being, oh, now they're a bunch of, they're cults. <laughs> they both, from the surface, seem to be doing the same thing, revolting against the church. Yet one is deemed a cult, and the other is just like, hey, we're Protestant. And they did, praise the Lord, we have the Bible now. Well, how do we know? Look what he says, contrary to the teaching which you learned, that the word of God is our standard. That's why I, we teach when people come to a, an expository church where they teach the word of God, 
a book at a time, and that's the main thing. You get health. It's a, it's different than some. It's we would be in trouble if it was up to me to choose topics every week, because I guarantee you the fifty two weeks that we have each year, the fifty two topics I would pick, this would not be one of them. But yet we get a balanced teaching, and it it teaches us what the Word of God says. But you can't get it all through church. You need to be in the Word. You need to be growing. You you need to to know what the Bible says. So that when false teaching arises or people start doing stuff, you go, no, 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 no. That's not what it says in the Bible. There's going to be a push this coming year to, that we would, I'm not even, I'm beyond the point of saying, hey, let's try to read the Bible in a year. I've fallen off that wagon too many times. However, there are some people that really want to. And if you want to shoot for reading the Bible every year, go for it. We're uh, on the 29th, Debbie Johnson's going to kind of share her story about how reading the Bible transformed her. We're going to have some tools. I, I read this fascinating book geared to mom, moms with young kids who like, it doesn't even apply to me, but it's one of the best books on encouraging you to read the Bible that we're going to provide them for us to read. But we need to be in the word so that when false teaching surfaces, you recognize that's not what the Bible says. Keep your eye on it, teaching that's contrary to the word of God that they received and turn away from them. This this phrase, there's this phrase like, no, I'm not going to engage. It's funny that the Jehovah's Witnesses have been making a run at our house recently. I think it's been divine inspired that I haven't been there like the last three times. Like I haven't been there, but Anna's got them and. And the last time the lady came, I guess, Anna, she came up and, and I was like, you know, it's just really bad right now. The kids are crazy right now. And I'm like in my robe and, and, and she's like, well, can I make a time to come back? And she's like, you know what? We're just not going to be interested at all. And the lady said, well, thank you for your honesty. And, and, you know, we'll see if she doesn't come back or not. I don't know. And, and so there's a time about like, well, no, the person that's coming to my door, they have their opinion. I'm not it's going to walk away. Then, then there, for me, it's like, no, let's let's go at it. Let's 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 get our swords out and discuss. And maybe I can have it. I don't know. But here he says, he says, just turn away from them. So some, it's like, don't even worry about engage. Just don't deal with it. Don't get involved. But but see, from a pastor's perspective, loving the the flock. Means to protect, and I see all sorts of warnings out there about who you know. We there's an obligation and love. Like I understand that everybody here we've come from somewhere else. Like if you weren't here seven years ago, the only person that was here seven years ago was Lloyd Beth, and Lloyd Beth has been here since like 1964. And and but but all the rest of us came from other places. And when we come from other places, we might have different opinions and, I, and different feelings or backgrounds. Or maybe you got saved and you were in another church, and, but you were taught with something. Everybody's welcome here. So we're not here like, hey, before you come to the Valley Baptist Church, we have a little theological test for you to take. And so will you take this test, tell us your background, and then we'll tell you if you're welcome in. No, everybody's welcome in. But we have to guard the teaching. And if somebody comes in and they're trying to lead people astray, well, then they're, I have a responsibility and I feel like Timothy, it's like ulcers. Like, 
I don't want to confront whatever. Like, I'll do it because I feel I'm more afraid of God than I am with confronting somebody is the bottom line. But to do it in love, I, that there is an obligation to, 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 to guard and to shepherd from, from me, although you, you know, maybe your times to walk away. It's difficult knowing. On Monday, Ben and I had like a, we said, hey, just be there at nine o'clock. I'll provide the coffee. We're going to be here for a minimum of four hours. We're going to lock the doors, except for the bathroom door. That one's fair game. Coffee, and we're just going to talk and talk and talk and talk. It'll be ADHD. We're going to just, whatever area we go to talk about, what's this going to look like when you come on staff? And one of the funny things is that that both of us repeatedly kept coming up is, I just don't want to screw things up. That was like the old, he's nodding with me. I got an amen from him. God is working at Valley Baptist Church and God has been doing a great thing here. And we recognize how easy it is through dissension. Um, what was the other word? Uh, hindrances, gossip, false teaching coming in. That all of these things, when God starts moving, attacks start coming. And having wisdom, knowing how to lead a church faithfully in love while main, staying true to God is difficult. That's why we need everybody to be in the word and growing, walking in love, being kind to one another. Verse 18, it says, For such men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. They have their own self-interest. By their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. This is why it's critical for you to have your foundation of the word of God laid. You can't just walk into Family Christian and think that every book in there is safe. Family Christian is, they're, they're a Christian bookstore owned by non-Christians. They're for profit. They don't really care. As long as it's in the, the religion, Christianish category, they'll throw it. And I'm not saying that it's necessarily a bad book. But we need to walk in with discerning minds. When you turn on your Christian TV program and you listen to the preachers, it doesn't not all have the same doctrine and the same sound teaching that we need to watch with discernment because many false teachers, I would say most false teachers, smooth and flattering speech, they sound really good. We need a master grace. We need to understand the gospel clearly so that when a counterfeit comes, we recognize it. But look at verse 19. There's not, this isn't happening in Romans. This isn't, you don't, you're not concerned about this after there's a problem. Well, you are concerned about it after there's a problem. But Paul recognizes their health. Look what he says. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. In the beginning of Romans, he says, the whole world has heard about your faith. And it's a beautiful thing. He says, therefore, I'm rejoicing over you all. Over, uh, that's my country here. I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent and what is evil. This is beautiful. I'm rejoicing with you. I want you to be wise in what is good. I want you to be innocent concerning that what's evil. And Timothy says, to the pure, all things are pure. This word here, innocent, is a word that means unmixed, simple, pure. In Greek, it was used for wine that was not diluted and of metal that was not weakened in any way. So it's this purity. It's only used three times in the New Testament. 
And you should recognize them all. The first is Matthew 10, 16, where Jesus speaking says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. In Philippians 2.15, he says, so that you'll prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world. And I think this is beautiful. This, uh, it's beautiful, but it's terribly hard in my own life to manage. How do we grow in wisdom concerning things that are good, be innocent of what is evil. Because in this whole passage, we're not called to be removed from the world. We're, we're called to be in the world. And in the midst of being in the world, there's this, there's this tension. As we go about and hang out in non-Christian circles and develop relationships, as we're doing that, we have to maintain our innocence. This is what Christ did. This is what Christmas is. We celebrate his coming, that he, being God, stepped into earth to be our example, to develop relationships, to give us the example. So I believe that we need to walk with God. And then as we're out with relationships, it's, I, I be quite honest, one area that I struggle with, I brought it up at the men's ministry because it happened to be, this was one of the subjects that we were talking about on Friday is I love law enforcement chaplaincy. Like I feel like God has called me to serve in this capacity, but there's also the reality that that's how I kind of, kind of keep um, my Christian bubble popped so that I don't find myself in isolation. I'm able to go back to the culture in which I came from. And I love the people in law enforcement that I serve. I love being out there with them. Cops have a sick sense of humor. It's, and I kind of, you know. But, but I find myself as I'm involving in relationships and, and being out there that sometimes, you know, there's jokes that are cracked I think, oh, that was really funny. I was like, oh, I can't be laughing at that. <laughs> like, that's not funny. That's unregenerate gunner, like, thinking that's funny. And I, like, how, like, it's like, okay, Lord, I want to be here. I want to invest in them, but keep me pure. And, and it's a difficult road. And I think it looks different for each one of us. We've all been called to different areas. And I think that we need to take the word of God and we need to walk with him, be praying. And then he'll guide you. Okay, then we get into these relationships. Well, first he says, uh, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. That's pretty cool. Let's read that again. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I have no idea what this is going to look like. (laughs) My feet. I mean, I think it's a church. I mean, Jesus spoke of this. The walls of Hades, like the gates of Hades will not overpower the church. That is offensive weapon. And I look at the church, and the church today, especially in the United States, we cower in fear. I've been asked by a bunch of people concerning Mexico, like, can we go? Can it be safe? Are you sure? I'm worried. Amen. I, I, I struggle with that, too. I was, I was a Navy SEAL. I know I'm working law enforcement. I hear all the reports. I see what's going on. I've never had a problem in Mexico. That doesn't mean there's not going to be a problem this next time. All I know is that I see that God is a God of peace. He's not a God of fear. And God has been doing a work in my life over the years. That This is where I'm speaking for myself. I don't want to be driven by fear. I don't want to turn my family into this little 
idol of mine that I need to protect. I do need to protect because I'm the shepherd of the fam- my family. But at the same time, it's like, no, I've decided to follow Jesus and I want my kids to know him. And going to Mexico, do I have fears? Absolutely. Do I have fears going to Mongolia? Absolutely. If I was going to go to Hawaii tomorrow, I would have fears. I have the gift of worry. I don't know that as a spiritual gift, but I have the gift. I, I'm great at it. But it's like, no, because there are people there that don't know Jesus. There are people there that we're going to build them a 16 by 12 foot shed. And we call it a house. And they're going to have tears in their eyes thanking us. And I'm going to come back to my house with water that gets both cold and hot. And I don't want to live my life in fear. You know what? You could go to Mexico. We could get in a car accident. We could all die. Same thing could happen here. You could get shot in Escondido or here just as much as you could in Mexico. You can go to Mexico and have a great time. You can come back home, stub your toe, get an ingrown toenail, turns into an infection, and then you die from an ingrown toenail. I don't know. My mind is great. I can talk about all the different ways that you could go. But I don't want to live like that. I know that my soul was paid for by Christ and I have a relationship with the living God and he's the one who gives me peace whether I live or die. I did a funeral on Thursday and one of the things that I often say at funerals, it's not original with me, is you can't control the length of your life but you can't control the width of your life and I want there to be width in my life and the things that matter most are what we do for Christ. And the God of peace is the God of peace. And Satan hasn't won. He is one. Then he says, the grace of our Lord be with you. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, it's all about grace. It's that Jesus paid it all for you. And it's as simple as trusting him by faith. He goes on to say, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. And so do Lucius and Jason. And so Sopater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who write this letter to greet you in the Lord. Paul wrote the letter, Tertius was a scribe, but he wasn't a scribe, but he was the guy who wrote the letter for Paul. But Tertius is an interesting name. I'll get the language wrong, but Tertius means three. Primus, Segundus, Tertius. Quatrus, I think, is like there's four. Why would this guy have the name three? Because he was a slave. Slaves didn't get names often. This is I'm slave number three. And this isn't in the text, but it has been gripping me because if we go back to verse 18, we read, for such are men are slaves, not of our Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. They're number one. And I see Tertius, and the thing that I have in my mind this whole week is that Tertius was third. And we need to be third. It's about Christ, it's about others, and then it's about yourself, third. And there's just been something beautiful thinking that I want to be Tertius. That's how I want to live my life. And so often I live it as I am numero uno. Then gay. I really like the name Gaius. Anna and I have talked about this, but I guess in our culture you can't name a kid Gaius. But Gaius is a sweet guy. He's mentioned in uh, the first, second, and third. John's is a guy who has had some sort of ailment, yet he had resources. And he invited people into his home. And, and here the, his hospitality shows Gaius hosted me in the whole church. That he opened up his house to them, that he was hospitable, greets you, Erastus. 
You have Tertius, slave. Now you have Erastus. Look what it says about him, the city treasure. If you go, I think it's in Corinth, and there's streets of marble, and you can find a stand. Well, I couldn't, but I've read that you that that the archaeologists have found stamp in the concrete of road that this road was paid for and provided by Tertius, not Tertius, Erastus. He's the city treasure, ultra, super duper wealthy guy. And I love it that the gospel transcends all peoples, all groups. Doesn't matter your wealth, your class, your language, your citizenship. It's for all. And we see it reflected in the early church. Quatrus, the brother. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. So includes just wrapping up a few things. Not a few things. I'm really done. We need the the grace of God. If, if, If you haven't Come to know Christ as your Savior. It's not about good works. It's about knowing him, placing your faith in him, and he he will give you life. Now, for those of us that have received the gift of eternal life, as described in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, there's also verse 10. Don't forget about verse 10, that we're his workmanship, created for good works, We need you as a church to be growing in your walk with God, to be serving. We are a body. It's not about me. It's not about any individual. All of us collectively, if you're at this church, I believe deeply that God has a place for you. He's gifted you in a way that only you can be used. And we need you to serve in that capacity. And so, Father, we do thank you and praise you, Lord, for this life you've given us in Christ. Father, I pray for just each person here, Lord, that you would help us to walk in love. Father, that we would just truly understand grace, that we would live in it, that we would walk in it, that we would treat each other with it. Father, we pray for our church that you would, Lord, keep us healthy, keep our eyes on you. Lord, as as you move, Lord, I'm convinced, Lord, that problems will come. It's spiritual warfare and, and Satan is at work and so lord we pray that as problems arise lord that you would just as a church help us to um, deal with them in love and truth and that we would be a healthy christ-like church for many years to come father we pray in our own lives that you would lord anything in us that's not of you that you would just chip away lord help us to become uh, your image bearers We love you, Father, and we ask this in Christ's good name. Amen.